Today, World Footprints will travel to the state of Jalisco, Mexico, where we'll be met by dolphins, pirates, and Jose Cuervo. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the multi-award-winning travel show that invites you to listen, learn, explore, and be inspired. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Jalisco is the seventh largest of the 32 states in Mexico. Many of the things that are widely associated with Mexico, like mariachis, colorful clothing, the sombrero, Mexican hat dance, and tequila, originated in Jalisco. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Jalisco is home to the popular tourist destinations of Puerto Vallarta and Guadalajara. It was in Puerto Vallarta where we enjoyed a swim with dolphins at Dolphin Discovery. We have the commitment with the people, there is interaction and with, with the dolphins and sea lions too. We also sailed the high seas with pirates on a replica of the Santa Maria. This ship uh, was built in Mexico, in Veracruz. It's totally made of wood, all of it. They use more than 35 kinds of wood, of wood for, to build the, the, the boat. We stopped in the state capital of Guadalajara and witnessed the making of tequila at the Buenos Aires Agave Field. And here we have the plant that we use to make the national drink. This plant that we have here is known as Blue Agave Tequilana Weber. Normally we can call it just Blue Agave. Our visit to tequila was complete when we toured the Jose Cuervo distillery. And the first step for their production of the tequila is the baking process. Enjoy today's show. We invite you to visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. All of our shows are archived there, but you can also find us on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and iTunes. Dolphin Discovery is Mexico's leading dolphin swim company. The company is leading the global stage in the protection and conservation of marine mammals. We learned about dolphins and Dolphin Discovery's work from veterinarian Pauline Vidrialis and staffer Israel Arena. My name is Paulina Vidrialis. I'm the veterinary in charge of the facility. I take care of dolphins and sea lions here. Paulina, um, what exactly is Dolphin Discovery? Well, Dolphin Discovery is our house and is the biggest company with dolphins in all the world. And what well, we take care of the, of, of the animals that we have in, in our facilities and we have the commitments that, that we told you before we have the commitment with the people there is interaction and with, with the dolphins and sea lions too and the commitment of conservation for the planet uh, research to know more about these species we work with and education to all the people have the possibility of know more about this Talk a little bit about those three elements, those three missions, education, research, and interaction. Well, education is a social service that we make with the the schools or the people with low resources, and we invite them to come to to learn about the facilities, about the animals, and to have fun with us. Uh, Conservation, we have programs also like clean the, the beach or different stuff with the nature and also to educate these guys from the schools to, to keep in mind to reduce, reuse, recycle, all these kind of things. 
we repeat all the time during the programs to do it, to do it, and also when, when the guys go to the school or to a specific place, well, we keep it that Now, these types of uh, programs in uh, recent years have received uh, some criticism by, you know, animal uh, activists uh, in terms of the the treatment of um, the animals. What can you say about that? Well, there's obviously different kind of uh, points of view. There's always going to be different points of view. But my point of view is that we don't mistreat the animals. Uh, As you see, we... Twenty-four hours, seven days of the week, and we are available for them. We take care of them. We have preventive medicine, and well, we ensure they are health, so they they healthy, so they can interact with you. I know you have a um, a, a program called the Miracle Program. What exactly is that? Well, Miracle Program is basically the breeding program of dolphin discovery that has been on ten or more years ago, and what. Where 80% of the animals we have, including dolphins, manatees, and sea lions, has born under this breeding program. We have some facilities. Have the, all the animals that are in need, they are only miracle dolphins. Are, are any of the animals released back into the wild? I mean, what is their their life um, program here? Well, no, they're not released in the wild because these dolphins are used to human contact and are used to get the food from humans, so it won't be safe for them to go back in the wild because they will be getting close to the boats, looking for fish, or they won't know how to hunt. Even though if that we try to keep the, those, the instinct alive, it's difficult for them to interact in, in, in the wild. Now, how many dolphins do you have here on site? We have seven dolphins here. Yes. What's their genders? We have four male, four females, sorry, and two males. No. So, sorry, five females and two males. Five. And where, where did they come from? Well, four of them, three females and one of the males, have born with the in dolphin discovery. The rest of them come from a dolphin army in Cuba. I know, you know, having experienced firsthand the, the dolphin program, you know, the interaction, um, I, it was an amazing experience, very transformative for me. What do you hope that others who have that up-close and personal experience with dolphins and sea lions, what do you want them to take away from that experience? Well, first of all, the knowledge to to interact with these species that are really, really cool and amazing animals. Uh, Also, to... Solve all the questions, all the doubts they have. We we don't have anything. Anything you want to ask you, we will answer the question. So and some of us talked uh, talked Russian. I did, and, and another French to the dolphins. Um, but, but they don't actually communicate or understand uh, English or words. So how do you communicate with them? Yeah, well, only with body language, with signals, basically. So we communicate with. They don't know whole language, and well, that's what we teach them this, with the meaning of a signal since they are small. So talk a little bit about your training as a veterinarian. I know it's a very specialized, any um, marine um, medicine that you do. 
too. It's been very specialized versus, you know, domestic animals and what have you. Tell, tell us about your training. Well, I did my career as any other veterinarian here in Mexico. When I did my practice, at the end, I started Dolphin Discovery as a volunteer, like in an internship. And after that, I was, I stayed on Dolphin Discovery as a trainer for six years. But during that, those six years, I was in contact all the time with the veterinarian team until they switched me from another department. I have, everything I know about marine mammals, I have learned here in Dolphin Discovery. Day-to-day job? Do you do daily checkups with the animals? Or? We have like schedules with them in the morning. The first thing we do is call the trainers, check them to see everything is okay, and I'm around always to to check them. And if there's something, they will call me right away. Also, what well, we program medical samples is to make sure that everything is okay. And if something is like rear, we program another medical sample. And the important here is that we work together because we train them with medical or behaviors. That means that we train them with, so they allow us to take a blood sample, a blue hole sample, a gastric sample. So we have to work together, the trainers and the veterinarians. I know there's also a program um, called Dolphin Quest. What is the difference between your uh, your company, Dolphin Discovery, and Dolphin Quest? Is there any difference? Well, it's different company. I haven't been at Dolphin Quest, so I'm I can't tell you the difference between. So you don't uh, collaborate with the other organizations on research. With organizations, yes, we do. Uh, we are part of the alliance. That it's an association of marine mammal parks and aquariums alliance ensure the well care of the animals we have in dolphin discovery actually alliance only dolphin discovery in mexico has the alliance certifications what is what has working here with these animals meant to you well i've been dolphin discovery for nine years so now it's my life okay that's it it's my life working in this country is it more fun or more work it's kind of both. <laughs> it's more work, but with fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for having us here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Israel Urbina. I'm the PR manager for Dolphin Discovery Group. Israel, how long has Dolphin Discovery been here? And, and talk a little bit about the corporation itself. Well, the Dolphin Discovery Group started in 1994. So this year, uh, we are celebrating 20 years of experience. We're actually now the biggest company in the world with 16 locations, mainly in Mexico, 10. And outside of Mexico, we have uh, six, six more locations. We, we are here now in the location of uh, Puerto Vallarta. That is in Vallarta, Nayarit, actually. Now, are you here um, because of uh, Puerto Vallarta is a tourist area, and this is, a, you know, a, a tourist attraction? Yeah, exactly. Dolphin Discovery started for tourists. Uh, the first one, it started in Isla Mujeres, in Quintana Roo. But uh, we started uh, looking for more areas, for destination areas, because dolphin, swim with dolphins is very attractive for, for tourists. So we started developing more habitats in different locations in Mexico City. We have here in Vallarta, we have in Los Cabos, and in Quintana Roo, all the touristic areas like Cozumel, Playa del Carmen, uh, Mahahual. 
in out, and outside, of course, as, as well in the touristic destination is, uh, Anguil, is Anguilla, Tortola, Caiman, Punta Cana, and San Kitts. So I was talking a little bit to Paulina, your veterinarian, uh, just about um, you know, some of the, the criticism that programs like this where you have received from animal activists and who you know complained about the care of animals uh, and, and what have you. What what do you have to say to those uh, those who criticize this program? First of all, that they need to know know us because normally the people speak because they don't have the information. So we, what we do with all these kind of people and groups is like inviting them. Come, see what we do, how we do it, because it's a 20 years of experience. We have all the accreditation, international and national regulations. So what, we, what, what can I say is come visit me, then you can talk about it. Do you find, have you found some people who have experienced what I just did and what uh, Ian just did today, which was wonderful, but have you found people who go through that experience and reemerge with a new love for this animal? And is that part of the, the mission of this company? Exactly. Well, as you can see, and everybody did it today, once you go out, you feel like a very, I don't know, a peace inside yourself, inside yourself because it's like... Touching and being with, the, with these animals is like magical. But mostly, and the most important thing is that we want to create more conscious about caring them. How to help the, the, the ecology or the world to keep these animals. For example, what, a good example that I say to people is that if we have the, the, these animals here in human care, we know how to, to care them. We have an, an, a, a case recently in Cancun with a, with a dolphin that uh, we rescued from the ocean because it, uh, it was sick. After one month of all these cares in, in, in the locations of, of dolphin discovery in, in Isla Mujeres, we released, we released him and we, bring it back, bring, we, we sent him back with a locator. So now we have more information on how they, where they are, what they do and how they um, go back to the, to the ocean as well. So it's very important to have these animals here with us because like this we know and we can care more about them. Now, for a dolphin, a rescue dolphin, um, who is not used to human contact versus the dolphins that you, you have here, how, how do you manage that care? It, I mean, for, for example, this is particular case, we had this animal for one month. And most of the techniques, for example, for feeding, is like with no contact with the human. The food was throw it directly in the water, not like, like as the one you see that you put the, 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 the food in the mouth of the animal. Because like this, the animal don't get used to the, to the humans. Otherwise, once we release them, when we release him, it will come back for more food. So one of the techniques is to put the, the, the food just directly in the water so he can chew it directly. That, that, that's one. The other one is not... Um, uh, the, the contact with the human is the less possible because we don't want him to be uh, used to the, to the humans. Otherwise, he's going to be coming again to, the, to that area. What we want is to go back again to the, to the, with, the, with their family or, or another social group. So it's part of the things that I can tell you that we can do in difference with the ones that we have here. You know, I, I think um, Discovery or maybe one of the one of the cable shows did a documentary on dolphins, and they actually portrayed dolphins, which 
You know, I grew up with Flipper, and so I grew up loving dolphins, but this particular documentary documentary portrayed dolphins in a very negative light. Uh, it, you know, as violent creatures, uh, um, instances where the male animals rape the female animals. Was that a little bit of myth tie, tied into this film project, or is that a reality? You know what, I, I, we, we can speak about what we actually do and what we do good. There's a lot of uh, movies or documentals that say part of their story. We don't know exactly if that's the story. What we, as, 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 uh, as in the beginning that you were asking me, what can you tell? I can tell, come and visit me. Don't talk about me if you don't know me. I, I don't know if the others are making that or not. I don't know. I can't tell you. But I can tell, I can tell you what I can do, do or what I do good. So I invite you to visit and see what we do here. What is the appropriate age group for somebody to uh, have a dolphin experience? Because I, I saw, as we left, I saw really itty-bitty like toddlers walking uh, to the pool with their, their parents. But is that too young? No, unfortunately, we have uh, programs for everybody, starting from one year to 99. Because the three different programs that, that we have is the first one is Encounter. We call it Encounter because it's recommended for kids from one to five, six years. Because it's only you pet the, the dolphin, you kiss it, you touch it, and you learn the anatomy, how it, how to, the, the, all the parts of the body. So that's for for kids. We have the second program that is the swim adventure. This more, as, as the number, as, as the name say, is the, the the activities that you have in the encounter plus um, uh, some activities like the dorsal, when that you take a boogie board and the dolphin push you with one leg. And the, and the last one that is the royal swim is the most complete. You do all the other, the, the before the, the previous activities, but in addition, the more um, exciting for everybody that is the foot push. When one dolphin push you from one uh, feet and the other one in the other, and you almost fly over the water. So the programs are for everybody. If you want just touching, it's encounter, more adventure, or royal theme, the program completes. I was surprised at um, I was surprised at how actually strong these animals were when they pushed me through the water, and I almost flew. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's part of the of the thing that, that we are doing, because like this, you can see how hard or strong are they, all the abilities that they can uh, do, and uh, and all this connection that the trainers have with them. So it's like more educational than just recreational. So you can see and you can ask anything. For example, uh, did you know that these uh, uh, dolphins don't, 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 don't sleep? They just uh, put half of the brain to sleep and the other one keeps away because of the, the predators. So you can, uh, during the, the, the program, you can ask anything that you want because they, that's why they are the, the specialists in mammals, marine mammals. What do you want people to take away from uh, a day at Dolphin Discovery? What we want is today spend a beautiful day as one of the slogans that we have is to live the experience of a lifetime because people normally don't remember any other day that they do, like, for example, uh, shopping or go to a restaurant. But I'm sure that you're going to be remembering the day that you swam with dolphins. So this is going to be something really special that will change your, change your life. So what we want is that you take the experience of a lifetime and that you help us to care more of the animals. 
this this part, Dolphin Discovery, includes more than just the Dolphin Discovery program itself. You have water slide programming. This is very family friendly uh, part. What do we have here? Well, this is Aquaventura part actually, but that is part of the same group. Dolphin Discovery Group is not only dolphinariums; it also has water parks. This one is Aquaventuras. Here we have water slides, ten water slides, swimming pools, the restaurant area, some gardens here, and, and, and the new addition is that the adventure, the adventure part of the park. We have a zip line that goes over the park. The challenge that is that, that you need to go and and I don't know fear, um, challenge your, your fear because you are in the highs, jumping and passing from one bridge to the other. Always with, with the security, and we have the other uh, activity that is the climbing wall. So it's for all the family, from kids that can go in the river or in the water slides, and then they swim with dolphins, the sea lions, the activities in the adventure. So it's for everybody. And speaking of sea lions, I met Pepe today, and exactly. Pepe is a very big boy. <laughs> Pepe is the star of the park. He is the one. Everybody that comes here is I want to see Pepe because it's a huge sea lion. It comes from the Galap- Galapagos in the south, but it's a star. You, if you've seen it, it's like, I don't know, uh, five feet, no, six feet more or less. It's huge. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Israel, for, for bringing us here today and for this wonderful experience. I hope you like it in the.com. Our journey through Jalisco, we took a detour on the high sea aboard the Santa Maria, where pirates swung from mast, walked the plank, and shared some history of this famous ship. This ship is called Marigalante. It's an exact replica of the old Santa Maria, the ship used by Christopher Columbus over 500 years ago to discover this continent. This ship uh, was built in Mexico, in Veracruz, totally made of wood, all of it. They used more than 35 kinds of wood, of wood for to build the, the, the boat. And it has many, it has done many, many trips. This ship has gone to Spain, to Japan. This one? This one. The trip to Spain in this boat is uh, 40 days. 40 days? 40 days. What? With motor. With motor. Are there sails? Yeah, well, it used to have uh, sails uh, that were useful, but they're very. It's a lot of work, and when and when, and right now we don't use it. We're going to a very near place, uh, so it's only for show. for show, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have three three sails. This one, right there in the middle, the second deck, and then the last one. This is the biggest one. As you know, the the regular sails are like. Yeah, like this, uh, like sideways, and we have it like from the to the front to the back to the front. They don't, they don't work. <laughs> yeah, when we sell them, when we put them up, they they help, but only one knot. One knot is, is not good enough. The ship has capacity for uh, two hundred and and twenty five. Uh, Today we have only 15. 19, the construction begins in 1980 and finishes in 1987. Seven years. It's not, 
the guy who built the, the boat uh, ran out of money. <laughs> so stopped the construction for three years. That's right. The guy who built the, who built the ship is a, a guy called Vital, Captain Vital. He's a guy who has a, a few Guinness records. He has held in the, the Amazonas River and at first he built a, a primitive uh, boat and crossed the, the Atlantic Ocean. And then they, they, he built this boat to make the same trip that Christopher Columbus made from Spain to, to America. To, to discover the, the continent. The ship went to Japan, and in Japan was uh, the first time where two ladies were joined the, the crew in Japan. This ship. Yeah. The way to go to Japan is first they, they go to Hawaii and then Japan. If, uh, well, the ship was built to commemorate the historical trips. So there was an old route to Japan from Japan to to America. And so the, the, the guy who built it he wanted to do the same the same trip. And when, when when we went to Japan, it was to commemorate 100 years of this relation between Japan and Mexico. That's right. And to when he when the ship went to Spain, it was to com to commemorate the 500 years of American discovery. In 19. Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Santiago de Tequila is a town about 60 kilometers from the city of Guadalajara. 
Tequila is the birthplace of the drink that bears its name. Tequila is made from the blue agave plant native to the area, and the popularity of the drink and the history behind it has made the town and surrounding area a World Heritage Site. We discovered the art of harvesting the blue agave during our tour of the Buenos Aires agave field outside of Tequila with our host, Juan Pablo. We're here just outside of the town of Tequila at the Jose Cuervo agave farm. Hola, Milo, buenos días. ¿Cómo se esta acá, Milo? No, if we use another kind of thing, if we use another plant, we are not allowed to call it tequila. If we use another, like, uh, element, like, for example... Uh, and like milk to make yeah. some cream or something like that, we are not allowed to call it just tequila. We are allowed to call it agave liquor or tequila liquor. Welcome to the agave fields of Jose Cuervo. Here we are in the Buenos Aires fields. We call it Buenos Aires or good wind. Something like that uh, is like the translation. And here we have the plant that we use to make the national drink. This plant that we have here is known as blue agave tequilana Weber. Normally we can call it just blue agave. The plant takes from seven up to 10 years to grow up. And when it's ready, then we need to do the harvesting. The harvesting is known as jima. The man that makes the jima is known as jimador, and I am going to introduce Ismael Gama. He's an expert. He's an expert in the jima. He has uh, 49 years working for Jose Cuervo. He starts really young. He, he was about uh, seven years when he starts working in the fields. Oh and this uh, activity, it's passed by generation by generation. His grandfather was a jimador. His father was a jimador. His older brothers, older brothers, yes, older brothers mm-hmm. were, were jimadores. And now it's his time. And it's 49 years working for Jose Cuervo. So he's kind of a, an expert in this activity. So, so the name, what does it mean? Jimador. Actually, uh, in, in Nahuatl, Exists a word, uh, we have a word that is uh, with X, Shima, X, uh, I, M, A, Shima. And That's another language? It, it's Nahuatl. It's mm-hmm. another, like, a, yeah. another language, another, uh, the, where the Indians talk. Oh, and that means uh, shape, in Spanish, like afeitar, shape or cut. That's, oh. the, the, that's why they call it chimadores or jimadores. Another meaning that we give to the, to the jimadores is because in... When they work really, like, uh, like uh, three hours working in the fields, they used to do a sound, like gemir or moan, like the moaners, like, oh, yeah. and in Spanish, sounds bad if we call it gemidores, it's like the moaner. So we change it in Spanish, instead of calling gemidor, because the sound, we call it gimador. Mm-hmm. We have both ways, like a popular version that is, yeah, because the sound that they made, and the... Uh, Meaning exactly meaning of Nahuatl that is Shima shape or cut. Very All right. Origin. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And well, this is the plant that we use to make the tequila. And as I told you, the, te- the tequila gets the I didn't tell you. Well, the tequila gets the appellation of origin. What does it mean? The agave can grow everywhere. You can get agaves everywhere. But to protect a little bit more the origin of the drink, we get the protection in five states in the country: Jalisco, Michoacán, Nayarit, Guanajuato, and Tamaulipas. That means if somebody wants to make tequila out of these five states, the drink that they're going to do is not allowed to call it tequila. They can invent any other name or just call that agave distillate. Once we get the plant like this, we need to wait seven years. We need to wait ten years. But before we harvest, I need to tell you more things about the plant. I am going to start talking about the reproduction of the agave. We have two different ways for the reproduction of the plant. 
The first way is by the quiote. The quiote, I don't know if you can see this agave that we have right here. The quiote is the, that like, like, uh, like a little tree that grows in the center of the plant. Once give us a flower, then we have the reproduction of the agave. But that way we don't use it anymore, at least in the tequila industry. Because when the quiote grows, all the strange, all the, sh the, the sugars that we have in the pineapple goes into the tree. So that plant will be, will, be, will be dead. So what we do is cut the quiote. And the reproduction nowadays is by the babies. We call them in Spanish hijuelos. That means the same, like a small son or the baby. And we have it in the sides of the plant. The roots of the agave don't grow to the deep, grows to the sides. So once the, the roots go out, once again, give us another agave. What the jimadores do in the fields, it separates the babies, the babies and replanted in another part of the fields. That's the way that we can get more agaves and more agaves. Each plant in the seven years, more or less, they can give you, the plant can give us up to 50 babies. So we can get enough agave to produce more and more happiness in bottle. So in this moment, Ismael is going to use this tool that is known as barra or barreton, and he's going to show us the way that they take out the babies. Okay. Did you say these are seven years old? These, these ones are six-year-olds. Six-year-olds. Yeah. Okay. As you can see, it's like a small, a small agave. That's why we call it babies or hijuelos. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And now Ismael changed the tool. They, he gets this uh, it's, uh, short machete. With, the, sure. with this tool, he's going to cut some of the leaves of the babies. He's going to cut the tips as well because we have really sharp spines. And the most important cut that Ismael did was the last one. And the last cut we are going to see if the baby is healthy or if it is not. In this last cut that we call tostoneo, uh, normally when you see like a brown color or, or red colors in here, that means that the baby is sick. In this case, the baby is really healthy. What can we do with the sick babies? We just cut them in little pieces and leave it on the ground as compost or fertilizer. So we use, we're trying to use as much as we can of the agave. I am going to pass this baby. If you want to hold it, I recommend to hold it from the bottom because the leaves we still have in a lot of the spines. Would you like to hold it? Yes. That's the agave plant. And once we get the babies, um, normally we do it before the rainy season. The jimadores are going to replant, are going to replant all the agaves. And Ismail is going to show us how to do that. I am going to ask, be patient because it takes too much time and it's really difficult to do it. He says that, he says that you give a little dance to the agave and that's it. As you can see, it seems to be really easy. He's an expert. Look at that. Yeah, it, was, it seems to be really easy, right? Exactly. And actually, the hard, the hard part here is to do it in the normal day of working because they have to replant about 3,500 plants, and we're talking about in five hours shift, 3,500 plants. So that's the difficult, the difficult part here. And once we get the baby in the, in the ground once again, we have to wait seven years. Normally, the average time is seven to ten years, but sometimes you can harvest agaves from six years. Sometimes you can harvest agaves from seven. It does, it, I mean, it's, each plant is going to grow in a different way, almost like a human being. So how do you know when it's ready to harvest? When you see in the bottom of the agaves that you can get like a red color leaves or like a dry leaves, as you can see in the bottom of the plant, that's a, a sign of maturity. Oh. So that's the way that we, okay, oh, let's start harvesting, to harvesting oh. the agaves. Once we get the plant, wow. after the third year, 
we, we have to do the first pruning of the agave. Why we do prunings? We have to, three different reasons why we do prunings. The first reason is because, as you can see, the shape of the leaf is almost like a cone, as you can see right here. Normally, in this part, we can get like a worm, we can get like a plague that starts eating the, the leaves and arrives to the heart of the plant. Oh. The second reason is because we have a really, really, really sharp spines in the tip of the, of the leaf. So to avoid any accident in the people that work in the fields, they cut this part of the agave, and that's the way that they don't hurt the, themselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the most important reason is to focus on the growing of the pineapple, not on the leaves. Sometimes you will see like a beautiful agave with huge leaves, but sometimes what happens, the pineapple is going to be really small. We don't care about the leaf because we don't use it for making the tequila. Oh. So we, we, do, we do the prunings, the plant is going to stress, it is going to get more starches and bigger size of the heart of the plant. So, you have a question? They you make the rope fibers from those we, Normally, the Indian people use it for that. The, I mean, the history tells us that the Indian people start using the leaf because the fiber. They didn't use the pineapple. Yeah. It was a mistake. It was a, they, they said that the goddess Mayawel, they put all the pineapples together because they don't use it. The goddess Mayawel, they, that is the goddess of the agave and the fertility, it was raining, sent a lighting, and all the, the lighting the hits the agave, and it starts burning all the all the agaves. After many many days, the people starts feeling like a sweet aroma in the agave. And by the days, the, the juice of the agave was fermented. They start drinking this, and they feel better. They thought that was the medicine, that the cure for everything: sickness, pain, uh, sadness, etc. They start drinking this agave wine that was fermented, and they feel better. Actually, it was not the cure. They just drink it a lot and get drunk. And they feel better. That's the history tells us that was the way that the tequila or the agave wine, the, the legends, yes. So what kind of a plant is an agave? Is it a cactus? Is it What is it? A lot of people think that it's a cactus, and it is not a cactus. Actually, it's part of the lily families. It's considered a flower. That's that's weird because you see it and it's, it seems so to be like a cactus. Related to the pineapple or not? No, not really. Oh, it's not more like a like like the lily family, the plant, the, the, like the flowers, the lilies. Yeah. And we, it's part of the lily family because it does have a flower. Exactly. That's yeah, the. Actually, uh -huh. is, it, is it related to aloe? Yeah. yeah. Actually, it's it's kind of the same family, just with different properties, with different characteristics. Each plant. Since the beginning, uh, the, the agave that we have in this region, in this region of Mexico, we had more of the blue agaves. In the, when, when we start producing, maybe we can, like I'm talking about, like more than 200 years ago, maybe you can mix different things. Nowadays, we have a concert regulation of the tequila that it's certifies all the tequila that you take on the stores. I don't know exactly how many, many years ago, they decide, okay, to produce tequila is going to be just blue agave. And, but nowadays it's like that. It's a rule. If you want to produce tequila, you just need to use blue agave. You must use that. Each agave, the, the average weight of the plant is from 40 up to 60 kilos. To make one liter of tequila, we use only seven kilos. That means each plant can give us up to seven liters of happiness. I mean, it's seven liters of tequila. It, the medium-sized pineapple. ¿Cuál es tu fa tequila favorito? He, he don't drinks. I mean, he don't drinks. I don't drink either. Uh -huh. Now, actually, yes. My favorite tequila is the blanco one, the, the clear one. Because for me, it's important to feel the flavor of the agave. 
instead of the wood. Because when you age the tequila, it's delicious. I agree. It's, the flavor is amazing. But for me, the flavor of the agave disappeared thanks to the wood. So that's why I prefer the silver tequila. Okay. So, in this moment, Ismael is going to show us how to do the first pruning of the agave. ¿Te gusta hacerlo, Milo, el primero? He's doing the first pruning that we normally give to the plants after the fourth year. And after the next year, after the fifth year, we uh, uh, careful. This was after the third year. After the fourth year, we do another pruning that we call arbolito or little tree, just because the shape that is going to take the agave. This is the second one after the fourth year. After the fifth one, we do another one that is a little bit easier, that is known as escobeta. <coughs> and once the plant is, uh, is giving us like the signals of maturity that, as I told you, was in the bottom of the plant, dry leaves, red color or brown color leaves, we do the last cut that is known as castigado or punished. All right. The purpose of doing this last cut, it was cut the center of the plant. This part that I have here, let me look the rest of the plan. I found it. Okay, so this is the center of the agave. It's, we call it cogollo. The, from the cogollo, we are going to get more and more and more and more leaves. Everything here are leaves. Look. Oh. All the leaves, we have it right here. Well, we are looking, looking in this, is when you eliminate this part of the plant, because the agave doesn't have any leaves to open, it's going to stress, and it's going to get, in the last year, normally we can grow the pineapple twice the size in the last year. And that, because it's a stress, it's going to, all the sugars, they are going to keep it in the heart of the plant, and we, that's the way that we can get better and sweeter tequilas. Once we have it like this, Ismael changed the tool. Where they use this COA, C-O-A is the name of this tool. He's going to shape the pineapple. So, adelante, Milo. The only fertilizer that we used is uh, the fiber of the agave after the milling, because we bring it back here to the ground, and the uh, waste of the distillation. Jose Cuervo is considered in Mexico like a social responsible company. Because we recycle everything in the production and we don't have, I mean, we don't have any waste and we help to, the, help to the town giving for free the fiber. In this case, the fertilizer that we use here is bringing back the waste of the distillation, put it on the ground, and the fiber. We mix it like that and we use it as compost. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Following the harvesting of the blue agave plant, we experienced how it was processed to create tequila while on a distillery tour at Jose Cuervo. In telling the story of tequila, a picture, actually a mural, is worth a thousand words as we explore the national drink of Mexico. This mural that we have in front of you was painted in 1995, the year when we accomplished 200 years as a factory. It was painted by Carlos Terrestre from Lagos de Moreno, Jalisco. 
This mural represents the history of the national dream and the evolution of the tequila making process. Everything starts from your right hand to your left. It starts with the goddess Maya Well. The legend tells us that she was the one that discovered the way to obtain this mystical drink. And here in the mural appears given to the people. As you can see, the group of people dancing around the agave. Why? Because they believe that was the miracle cure for sickness and sadness. Every time that they feel bad, they start drinking this agave wine. They drink it a lot and then they get drunk and forget about any problem or any, any, any sadness. Then we have a man on the horse that is supposedly the founder, Jose Antonio de Cuervo, the man that established the factory in 1758. But was the son who received the concession from the king Charles IV of Spain in 1795. Then we have the man of the field, the Jimador, thanks of his ability with the coa, the tool that he used, leave all the pineapples free of the leaves, and we bring them to the process. Here we have underground ovens, or basically ovens, as we have here in La Rogenia. We have the mule in Taona. The Taona is this big rock that was killed by two animals. Thanks to doctors, especially used for the pineapple, and when the leaves was keeping it with the tanks, as you can see, there's a man inside. What was the purpose of this man? Get inside, take the fiber, squeeze the use, and just separate the fiber. As you can see, the man here seems to be like a really good dress. Actually, he was completely naked, because thanks to his sweat, thanks to the eight-hour shift that he could be inside of the juices, kept a little bit more for the fermentation, but don't worry. Not the tequila that you drink today, we don't use that process anymore, thanks God. Then we have the distillation, in copper alabics, copper pots. We have the wooden barrels for the aging process, and we finish with a Mexican fiesta. I feel like we're in an I Love Lucy, you know, the, the yeah. chocolate. <laughs> oh, yeah, the chocolate. Yeah. You can hear After donning the mandatory hairnets, a margarita awaits us as we head into the distillery. You like a margarita? Margarita? I'll take a sip. All right. Very nice. It's 10.30. And you're going to margarita. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's on in here. Yes. Five o'clock somewhere. That's good. Do you like a margarita? We're in the heart of Central Tequila visiting the Jose Cuervo Distillery. Let's go inside for a look. We rejoin our host and guide Juan Pablo as he shares the legacy of Jose Cuervo in the town of Tequila. Welcome to La Rogenia. This is the oldest distillery in Latin America because it was established in 1758 by Jose Antonio de Cuervo. We have a corporation in Mexico City and distribution centers in London, Hong Kong, and New York. We are the number one factory of selling tequila. And also we have another factory in La Laja, Jalisco. La Laja is another town of the state. That factory is known as Camichines and is four times bigger than this one. But here in La Roqueña we have the traditional process as the beginning. One of the things that strikes you about the distillery as we walk through is that it doesn't feel like a factory, but more like a hacienda. It's a hot day in tequila, and it's made even hotter by the ovens that receive the blue agave, the first step in making tequila. So here we are in the agave reception or oven patio. Here's one of the patios that we receive the agaves from the fields. 
The plant that we use is known as blue agave tequilana weber, as you already know it in the fields. And the first step for the production of the tequila is the baking process. That's why we have 16 masonry ovens. Where the horneros or oven workers are going to take all the pineapples inside of the oven. This process is going to take 38 hours. And after that, we need to open the doors again to let them cool down. Because once again, the oven workers need to get inside of the oven and handily make and take out all the pineapples within the back part. The average weight of the plant is from 40 up to 60 kilos a medium size. Because sometimes we can get bigger pineapples, more than 100 kilos, and sometimes we get the small ones, like 15 or 25 kilos. To make one liter of tequila, we are going to use only seven kilos. That means a medium-sized pineapple can give us up to seven liters of tequila. As you saw it on the fields, the raw agave doesn't have any tequila, doesn't have any alcohol. We just have fiber, water, and starches. The starches are going to change in sugar thanks to the baking process. I don't know if you can perceive a sweet aroma in this area. In a moment, I am going to give you to try the agave. That way you can taste it. The oven work is labor-intensive, and Juan Pablo helps us understand just how hard the oven work is. But here, too, the sweetness of the blue agave gives life to tequila. Thank you. 
only does the blue agave give life to tequila and the community that bears its name, but it sustains that community in more ways than one. One of the purposes of Jose Cuervo is use everything and nothing waste, as I told you before. All of this fiber normally is sent into the fields, use it as compost or fertilizer, and a lot of people in the town used to make this kind of handcrafts, paper, mats, ropes, bags, fit their animals with this fiber, and that's another way that we can use it. That's why we can say we're using the trash and good things for the fields and good things for the people. Because thanks to the Jose Cuervo's Foundation, the people that receive the fiber for free, they make this, sell it, and get more money for their families, that I think is a really good idea. It's the things that we can make with the fiber of the Tequila is one of those spirits that ages like a fine wine. The older it gets, the smoother it tastes, as we learn about the two types of tequila and its aged variants. We have the first category that is known as tequila, 100% of agave. These tequilas in the label, you're always going to read 100% of agave or 100% of blue agave. What does it mean? That means that these tequilas are made with 100% of the sugars from the blue agave. The use you try in the agave was the only thing that we used to produce this tequila. We have the second category that is known as tequila, 5149 or only tequila. These tequilas in the label, you'll never read 100%, you'll never read 5149. You're going to read only tequila. Why? Because these tequilas are made with the 51% of the sugars from the blue agave and another 49% another kind of sugars. Could be sugar cane. Okay. Well, uh, we use sugar cane. This tequila is special for cocktails, for example, the margaritas. Yeah. All the tequila that is recommendable to always drink the straight or little by little are all the tequilas 100% of agave. Because if you mix them, we can say that we use the flavor that agave is giving us. These two categories, we need to divide them in five classes, which are blanco or silver, reposado, rested, añejo, age, extra añejo, extra age, and we have the fifth class that is known as joven or young tequilas. The young are the blending of two different tequilas. Mix the silver as the base with some reposado, or mix the silver as the base with any of the añejos, we call it joven or young tequilas. Silver tequila, after distillation, as you try it, 55% of alcohol. Normally, we put it in wooden tanks from 15 days to more than two months, just to get a little bit of the aroma and the flavor of the wood. The blanco is no more than two months. The reposados are more than two months, but less than one year. No more than one year. The flavor, the color, and the aroma change thanks to the time that we leave it on the barrels. If the tequila takes more than one year, we call it añejos. The añejos are from one up to three years. Once again, the flavor change, the color change, it's a little bit darker, more like smooth flavor. And if the tequila takes more than three years, we call them extra añejo, extra age. This one is from three up to seven years. What happens when the tequila takes more than seven years? The, the flavor is going to be really bitter, it's going to be strong. That is not going to be that good to drink it straight. We can use them. You can use tequilas 10 years in the barrels, 15 years in the barrels. It's going to be really strong, but it's the tequila that we use to standardize the other process, the other products, I'm sorry. Imagine that we want to get more color in this, but we bring these really old tequilas, we mix, mix everything. That's the way that we can get more flavor, more color, and more aromas in the other products. There's no better way to end a trip to Jose Cuervo than in the cellar, where they keep the best of the best tequila in oak barrels. Cheers as we enjoy a sip of Reserva La Familia. So at this moment, I got really good news for you. This moment, we can take off our hairnets, thank God. And we are going to get downstairs today in the center of the Reserva La Familia. And we are going to have an exam. If you don't pass it, I am going to be the only.
Hollywood that drink reserva a la familia. So I wish you the best, good luck, and well, let's start over here. Finally, here we are in one of the most special places of the, of the house, which is the Reserva de la Familia Aging Cellar. And here is where we age, which is considered the best tequila of the house. Reserva de la Familia is a tequila that came up to the stores in 1995 when we accomplished 200 years as a factory. Supposedly before this year, the family and the close friends were the only ones that drink this Reserva de la Familia. They decide to share it with everybody, and they, to make it a little bit more special edition, they decide to make a contest with Mexican artists that design different wooden boxes like oh. this. This is the 2014 design, it was painted by Enrique Rosas. The one that you saw upstairs, the blue one, was the 2013, it was painted by Carlos Aguirre from Guerrero. Here in the back part, in the background, we have more of the, the past designs, because every year we change the design and we change the artist. One of the purposes was, or, or is, uh, share the best tequila out of the house with a little piece of art on Mexican hands. Even if the Reserva de la Familia is considered the best tequila out of the house, we have another tequila which is considered the most expensive tequila that we have in the distillery and it certifies as the oldest tequila that exists. We have here in the back of the door, we have these bottles that are known as Damajuanas, then Jane's. And in these Damajuanas, in these bottles, we still have in silver tequila. You're going to ask why a silver tequila is more expensive than the Reserva de la Familia, just because this simple reason. All the tequila that we have, that we have here was made in the 1890 to the 1900s. Oh. All of this tequila is more than 100 years that was made. It's still good because in the bottle, you just keep the tequila. You don't change it. In the barrels, if you leave it more than seven, the flavor starts getting like a bitterness that is going to be a little bit strong to drink it. So this tequila was used to produce a, a special edition, a collection edition, of Jose Cuervo that was known as Jose Cuervo 250th anniversary. In 2008, they just made 495 bottles. In 2009, they just made 580. In 2010, 175 bottles. Sadly, I never tried that tequila before because the price of the bottle, the 750 milliliters, was 25, it's 25,000 pesos, almost like $2,500. When I was in, in the States, they sell the, the shot, $300 shot, that is too much money for me. But maybe that's another reason why I'm still loving more the silver tequila. I don't need to take care about these really, really expensive tequilas. But even if I, I didn't drink the, the 250th anniversary, I drink this tequila many times. And if, I prefer <coughs> telling you the flavor of the Reserva de la Familia. I prefer to give you to try this. Mm -hmm. But it's important to tell you that I won't give you to try from the bottle because I don't know what happened with the last group, but we don't have any bottles. Somebody disappeared the bottle. <laughs> so that's good because the bottle you can buy it in the airport, you can buy it in the States, you can buy it in different parts in different parts of the world. Oh, but drink the Reserva de la Familia in the underground cellar of the Reserva and drink it directly from the barrel. This one that only can happen here in Tequila and in this special place. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints radio show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show, visit us at worldfootprints.com. You can also find us on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and others. If you want to follow us on our travels, join us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and other social networks at World Footprints. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and invite you to listen, learn, explore, and be inspired every Tuesdays and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and on demand. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.